Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 223rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are featuring another prison. This one is the old Idaho State Penitentiary. We're going to be joined shortly by the hosts of the Not Alone podcast, Sam Fredrickson and Jason Moitoso, who both are from Idaho. And they're going to talk a little bit about the history of this prison and some of the hauntings going on there. We want to give a little shout out to our most recent kid listener. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. How are you? Denise, we've talked about how we're going to be at the Potter and Love Conference in New Orleans in August of 2018. We will not only be attending, but we also will be on a panel there. And we've invited listeners to join us. It's a great opportunity to hang out with us, meet some of your other favorite podcasters. And you know we're going to go out and do something creepy while we're in New Orleans. Oh, yes, we are. And we're also going to go out and get some stamps. If you decide that you'd like to join us there, we have a special discount code for you guys. You get 10% off. So all you need to do is go to www.podern.love, L-O-V-E, and then at checkout, put in the code BUMP, B-U-M-P, and you will get 10% off at checkout. Yes, and so we would love to see you there. And for those who love food, New Orleans has some of the best cuisine in the world. Said by somebody who absolutely loves that Cajun food. Yes, ma'am. Also have another podcast for you guys to check out. If you're into horror movies and you like to listen to reviews about them, I absolutely adore The Corpse Club. That's quite the name. It is produced by the people who do The Daily Dead magazine. Oh, very cool. All right, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Christina. Hey, Christina. Giselle. Hello, Giselle. Malika. Hey, Malika. Didi. Hey, Didi. I think this is Alicia, but I'm not sure. It's E-L-E-S-H-I-A. Hi, Alicia, and I'm not going to try to repeat all the letters. Welcome. Celine. Hey, Celine. Brian. Hi, Brian. Tom. Hey, Tom. Rudraj. Hello, Rudraj. Misty. Hey, Misty. Charles. Hi, Charles. And then it's either Trini or Triny. Hello, Trini Triny. Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Quadri. Hi, Quadri. Sam. Hey, Sam. Pete. Hey, Pete. Paul. Hi, Paul. Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Melissa. Hey, Melissa. Tiffany. Hey, Tiffany. MD Sojib. Hello, MD Sojib. And Lee. Hey, Lee. And now, this moment in oddity. Do mosquitoes tend to bug you when you're searching for Bigfoot in the woods? Are you having trouble attracting Bigfoot to come out of hiding? Well, a woman in North Carolina has solved your problems with her Bigfoot juice. 
It would seem that Allie Megan Webb created her environmentally safe, Bigfoot-attracting bug repellent quite by accident. Her husband, who is a member of Bigfoot 911, asked his wife if she could make her home-brewed bug spray less feminine-smelling. She tried a few concoctions to get a woodsy smell. Bigfoot 911 tried out the bug repellent several times, and Webb noticed that there was a direct correlation between the use of her bug spray and Bigfoot sightings reported by the research group. She figured it must attract Sasquatch, and when asked how she knows it works, she said, how do you know it doesn't work? Good question, although we have to admit that it couldn't be that simple to finally get Bigfoot to come out of hiding. If it is, then that certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of September, on the 26th in 1960, the first ever televised presidential debate occurred on CBS between presidential candidates John F. Kennedy and Richard M. Nixon. During the 1960 presidential election, America was engaged in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Nixon was a seasoned lawmaker, while Kennedy was a young senator. When the two men met before the cameras, Nixon had a slight lead in the polls. His experience was a plus, and the fact that Kennedy was a Catholic caused some people to not want to vote for him. But Nixon was older, and he had suffered an infection that landed him in the hospital prior to the debate. When he was released, he had lost weight and looked frail. Nixon was offered makeup, but he refused to wear any. Kennedy had a nice tan, which could even be seen on the black-and-white television. Nixon sweated profusely, while Kennedy looked fresh-faced and young. People who listened to the debate on the radio thought that Nixon had won, while those who watched it on television thought Kennedy had won. The damage was done for Nixon because most Americans gravitated towards Kennedy after the debate. Today, it is standard for debates to be televised, and most Americans would probably agree that there are far too many. The old Idaho State Penitentiary was in use for over 100 years and had more than 13,000 prisoners pass through the gates. As was the case with most prisons that were built in the 1800s, conditions were brutal with the complete lack of sanitation and ventilation. All variety of criminals were housed here, and many were executed on the gallows that were set up first in the Rose Garden and later inside the prison walls. Violent riots have had their place in the prison's history. All of this negative energy seems to have absorbed into the sandstone walls and now reflects back haunting energy. Guests and employees claim to have experienced paranormal activity. Denise, what sets all of the prisons apart from each other are the stories. The stories about the hauntings, the stories about the criminals or the inmates that were kept there. That's what makes them all individual because pretty much all of them that were built during this time were about the same. Conditions were horrible, they were overcrowded, and people were in there for all varieties of crimes from stealing something little to murder. What's going to set this apart are the stories. 
And this is the first prison that I've run across that I have been doing research on that has done such a wonderful, fabulous job of record keeping. The people who went in to save this prison somehow saved all of the records that go back for over the hundred years that this old pen has been there. And Denise, I was having a great time as I was perusing some of the files. And we're going to share some of those files with people. There's intake forms, all sorts of wonderfulness. So I I really love that not only has this prison been turned into a a museum, but they have the files to go with it. So if somebody had wanted to write about this penitentiary, they've got everything they could possibly ever want to have. Which is very unique and also very cool. So kudos to the Historical Society that has saved these records and compiled them. When I was looking at the PDF that they had, there were two PDFs that I looked at. And the one that I got a lot of information from was over 400 pages long. Wow. Before we get into that, we should probably tell you a little bit about the city where the old pen is, and that's Boise. It's located in southwestern Idaho. This is about 41 miles east of the Oregon border. It's believed that the French-Canadian trappers named a river for which the city of Boise in Idaho derives its name. Now, of course, my French is horrible, so the river was called La Riviere Boise, which means the Wooded River. The federal government later established Fort Boise here when it was still a territory, and this area was near the Oregon Trail, so that's why the fort needed to be built there, was to help protect the trail from Native American attacks and other things going on there. Boise was incorporated as a city in 1863. In 1867, the United States Congress provided for the construction of the Idaho Penitentiary, and the Idaho Assembly codified it into territorial law in 1869. In September 1870, the Idaho statesman reported, the penitentiary looms up like the frowning walls of some impregnable fortress. Distance lends enchantment. This building will be ready for the reception of guests in a very little while. The man who would commit a felony within sight of its gloomy walls ought to spend the remainder of his days within them. Construction began outside Boise City on the prison in 1870 and took two years. Initially, the prison was a single cell house known as the Territorial Prison. A 17-foot high wall was built around the perimeter. The first prisoners were 11 inmates that were brought over from the Boise County Jail. The jail was clearly too small and construction on other buildings began. A new cell house was built in 1889 and had three tiers with cells built from steel. The third tier was used to house inmates on death row because it was closest to the future Rose Garden where the gallows were located. The administration building was completed in 1894, and this housed the armory, a visitation room, and the warden's office. A year later, the building that housed the commissary and blacksmith shop was completed. It would be renovated in the future to include a barber shop starting in 1902 and a hospital in 1912. The dining hall was built in 1898, and in 1899, cell house 2 and cell house 3 were finished. These houses featured cells that could hold two men, their bunks, and Denise, a honey bucket for their waist. Well, ain't that sweet. So I already think being in a prison cell with one other person would be horrible for having to do that kind of duty there. But can you imagine if it was just a bucket? And then, of course, there's no flushing. Nope. So it probably smelled lovely in that prison, I would guess. Not only that, but I can only imagine the pleasures of being a guard where there are honey buckets. Ew. Who has to empty those? Maybe they had the inmates going around having to empty the honey buckets, but I imagine that a guard or two got the honey bucket in their face. Oh, I wasn't even going there. Yuck. 
women were brought into the Idaho penitentiary as well. There was no separate place for them, so the male inmates built a wall around the old warden's home and the women stayed in there. There were seven two-person cells inside along with a kitchen and bathroom facilities. The 1920s brought more expansion with a multi-purpose building that had a bakery, shoe shop, license plate shop, shirt factory, laundry, and recreation room. There were also communal showers here. The cooler was built at this time as well. It held cells that could hold four to six men, but it was used for solitary confinement. Siberia was added in 1926 with 12 3x8 cells that were designed to hold one man. Cell house number four was added in 1952, and cell house number five was completed in 1954. This building was used for maximum security inmates, and the gallows were moved inside of this building. Conditions throughout the years were poor, especially in the very beginning. The sandstone walls were bad insulation. The sandstone retained the heat in the summer and was bitterly cold in the winter. And then, of course, as we mentioned earlier, the the toilets in the cells were just buckets. Plumbing didn't reach the prison until the 1920s. There was no real sanitation then, and there was no proper ventilation, so disease spread easily. Then you have the brutal nature of the inmates with their abuse of each other, and then there was also guards who abused the inmates. The prisoners fought back in the 1970s with two violent riots. The first occurred in 1971 and lasted three hours. There was $25,000 in damage and one inmate was killed. The riot that followed in 1973 was far worse and ended with a fire that destroyed many of the buildings. The original building that the prison started with eventually became the chapel in the 1930s and prisoners burned that chapel and then the dining hall to the ground. After the riot, the prisoners were moved to a more modern penitentiary and the old Idaho jail was closed down. We are so excited to be joined by the hosts of one of our favorite podcasts, The Not Alone Podcast. We have Sam Fredrickson and Jason Moitoso with us, and they're going to share with us a little bit about their state and the old Idaho penitentiary. How are you guys? We're good. Doing well, yeah. We're probably a lot drier than you are right now. Yeah, for the listeners, and this is a first for these guys, we're interviewing (laughs) them during Hurricane Irma. So hopefully the power holds and we'll be able to continue with the interview. But uh, I bet you'll never have this experience again. I I should hope not. I am filled with fear for you. I'm worried that at any point we're just going to hear some big bang. And Diane, Denise, are you there? (laughs) That could happen. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, yeah, we're super excited to be here. How long have you been doing the podcast? We are coming right around the bend on month seven. Really? It feels like four years. It does feel (laughs) like four years. No, yeah, we've been been in it for about seven months now. We uh, were putting out episode 30 this week. Well, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the podcast so they kind of get a feel for the material that you guys deal with? When people ask me on the street, I like to tell them that it's a history show with a paranormal bent. But really what it is is Bigfoot and Sasquatch and aliens and demons and and ghosts and and poltergeist and all of that. This last week we had one on a a talking mongoose. We pretty much just tried to do our best to cover anything and everything that falls outside of the realm of normal. So we've done, I mean, ancient curses, a few UFO abductions. I'll probably do a lot more before it's over. But really anything you could want from the paranormal, that's kind of what we're here to give you. 
it's been my interpretation as I've listened to you guys that it seems like, Sam, you're the believer. And I wouldn't say that Jason is a non-believer. He's more of an open-minded skeptic, kind of like us, only he jumps to the let's give this more of a scientific explanation before I believe it. And then if you pull me along enough, maybe I'll believe. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, that sounds about right. I like to uh, question most, most things that we go over. I would and try say, to find as many answers as I can. I would say as time goes on, I find myself believing more and he finds himself believing less. So we're just <laughs> at this time trying to counteract each other. That's it really used to be like is. a beautiful natural harmony. Yeah, we're and almost now it's more right of like a now debate. And that's all right. That's all right. I could dig that too. What got you two into looking into things that were outside of the realm or kind of weird or odd? I've been into this sold out for aliens since I was six years old. We were driving to my grandparents. They lived about four hours away in a town called Pendleton in Oregon. And we were driving and I saw a little ball of light come up and float next to my car for probably 30 seconds and float away. And ever since then, I've been just intrigued with the paranormal, with everything from cryptids to to UFOs and back again. I've always wanted to do a podcast ever since I uh, the first podcast I listened to was uh, Welcome to Night Vale back in like 2012, 2013. I caught it right as it was starting. And ever since then, I wanted to do a podcast. And then one day I I figured I'm just going to do it. And then I asked Jason to do it. And Jason, how is that for you? Dude, I just like the attention. Jason (laughs) just likes the attention. (laughs) I just like to hear myself talk. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, And that, I mean, we we talk about some interesting subjects. If anything, we kind of broaden our view and we have more uh, conversation starters now than anything else. Yeah. Jason, Jason's mentioned before that for him, and I think this is, this is true of me too, we both really like looking at beyond the, the physical, like what is happening here and trying to explain it, but also seeing how these events and these either individuals or creatures, how they shape folklore. Yeah, the culture around it. So yeah, that's always, really what we like. It's always an interesting yeah, concept to look at. And then it makes you scrutinize some other things that you already believe or look into. It's true. I know you both are in Idaho, and when people think of Idaho, they don't necessarily think, oh, a bunch of weird stuff and legends and ghosts. But you guys had a whole episode just dedicated to your local stuff, and I was, wow, there's a lot going on there. I think we've only covered (laughs) one location in Idaho, and when I heard you talking about the old Idaho penitentiary, I went, wow, that place sounds fascinating. And then just a couple weeks ago, I was watching The Low Files, and they did one of the episodes (laughs) there, and I went, wow, what a cool location looking place. So tell us a little bit about this location. Yeah, the I mean, the old pen, when we did that episode, it was the number one. I was like, hey, guys, Boise friends, Idaho friends, what should we talk about? It's always the number one thing in people's mind. And Jason was saying that like when he moved here within a week, he he knew all about the old pen and people had come up and just told him about this haunted location yeah that was like the first thing that really you get to know when you think of like boise culture is is going to be the old state penitentiary yeah it's uh it's definitely in the minds of at least everyone in boise but especially around around the state i would say the most haunted place but it's a it's got a long and and rich history it started in 1870 that's when it was just the territorial prison because we weren't even a, a state at the time but it operated from 1870 to 1973, and it housed over 13,000 inmates. There was 110 of them 
who died within the walls, usually due to sickness, cold, that sort of thing in the winter. There were 10 of them were executed, and Idaho has only had 11 state-sponsored executions. So pretty much the, the whole lion's share of that all took place within this building, which in and of itself is beautifully and also terrifyingly made. I mean, it's just these high sandstone walls. The rock was actually quarried by the prisoners and built by the prisoners themselves. So, And it's been so well-preserved. After it shut down from being a prison, it became a museum. It's so well-preserved that it's almost like stepping back in time when you go into it. And what I love about it, too, is that like one of our most popular hiking trails is like nestled right behind it. So you get a pretty spectacular view once you get to the summit of looking down and over the old state pen and, and it really gives you an idea of what it would have been like there. It's beautiful. Wow, that sounds really cool. It's just amazing to me that it was open for a hundred years. A lot of prisons don't make it that long. Yeah, it's you know, it's, it's just one crazy. of those things and, and Boise has this and Idaho has this where like, we don't really have the population for a lot of things that we get. Like, yeah. even, for instance, our, our Apple store here in the mall, it's like, we don't have the population for an Apple store. It's just that we're so well positioned that they put one there. And I think it was a, a really similar thing in there. It's just like, well, this is the most central location in the entire Idaho territory. Makes what else sense. are we going to do? And yeah. they did. They kept it open all that time. It's a beautiful, it's just a treasure to have regardless of the horror that went down inside of it. Right. And I think, I mean, as far as being open for 100 years, you got to think inmate conditions mm-hmm. in the beginning versus the end of that uh, that operation has to be extreme. And it, and it did become very extreme. I think that's where we get some of the, the more gruesome and maybe the, uh, the reason why spirits tend to linger. Well, since this is a museum, I'm assuming that they offer tours for people to go through it. They do. It's like, I think it's five bucks. You were just there, weren't you? No, no. I, you I'm gonna, didn't go? No, I didn't go. Uh, I'm going to go during Halloween so I can do a night tour. Oh, yeah. They do that. They they will let you stay in there all night. Like, it's it's great. They have it themed and, and I'm they gonna, are... And I'm going to convince you to come with me. There we go. I'm not doing it. They are <laughs> well, well aware of the role the prison plays in the psyche of, of the city. And so they are more than happy to let ghost ghost hunters inside keep it open all night on Halloween and let people sleep over in there and, and explore the, the halls. But I think it's like five bucks on a normal day, five bucks. And you go in, you see not only this beautifully preserved area, but you also see artifacts throughout Idaho's history. Myself, personally, I, when I was in high school, that's where I took my senior photos and, uh, that's- yeah. What? It was, it was you a took good your decision. senior photos at, at a the prison. Pen. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what does that say about me? <laughs> that's fun. It's pretty yeah. metal, bro. <laughs> it was good. I know when I was watching the low files, two of the rooms that they locked themselves into was the area where they had the gallows and then they had the solitary confinement area. And the yeah. gallows was just anytime that you hear that they have a gallows inside of a prison, mm-hmm. it just seems really freaky to me. And they have is like this edge that you could stand around and then the floor kind of went down almost like what you would build if you were going to put a pool in. So it's like right. where the pool would have been, 
that's where the body goes. Yeah, didn't sort they call like it like the bit. drop room or something like should that? Should be the drop zone. That's what they should have yeah. named it. <laughs> but I mean, it, it has to be indoors because you know we have those blizzards. That's true. <laughs> that foot of snow. We have to execute someone. I, I think you for everyone to watch, we have to have a enclosed area. All right. <laughs> what it makes the most sense to me. That's, That's why funny. I would design it that way. <laughs> it, they are scary. It is a a interesting experience being there that's also one of the most like the paranormal hot spot itself in the prison is there i believe it's in cell house number five which is the maximum security building because the one you shoot for that's the one you you aim for (laughs) most of the executions before infamous one of raymond snowden had occurred outside in the rose garden and it was kind of nice. You're surrounded by flowers and all this, and then you die. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a romantic image. Right. Almost, yeah. <laughs> but over time, they just got condemned. And it is, I mean, I'm sure that a part of it is the weather here. I mean, it's just not outdoor structures just really can succumb to the elements, especially in the harsh winters. And so they did. They built this newly, specially constructed, state-of-the-art killing machine gallows in cell house number five. And that was where... I already mentioned it, but Raymond Snowden was sentenced to die. And essentially what happened is that even spookier thing about it is that when they pulled the lever there, the trap door, something malfunctioned somewhere around. But there's this big plate glass uh, that you can use to see into it. You're in an observation room and you can watch the individual get hung. The gallows malfunction and the trap door opens in such a way with such a force that it essentially shatters that glass plate which lets all of the sound in the room come out and what that sound is is raymond snowden choking to death and because mm -hmm, because it it failed to break his neck he was left hanging there for 15 minutes choking the entire time it is just thinking about it gives me the willies i mean that's the typical length of time in in case you don't get lucky and your neck snaps but you also usually the friends and family and press and all that don't have to sit there and listen to you just right right gasp and it's the wild west anymore true it's there that people will report once in that room hearing still to this day gasping and choking and strangling for air there have been uh, full-bodied apparitions that have taken place. Essentially, the one I read was about just a little kid on a school trip. Because that's the other thing. You go there. You go there in elementary school or middle school or, or high school. It's a very popular field trip place. And the the one account I had read was this young boy who was just walking past the room and saw a man hanging there and started screaming. And, of course, it's just this little eight-, nine-year-old kid. He doesn't know what's happened here. He doesn't even know what that room is. It's uh, it's fascinating stuff. Right. So, and it's, like, right it's right here, too. It's, like, a 15-minute drive away from where we are yeah, right now. So. Yeah. So it's kind of like Boise's version of Scared Straight when you take the school children there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If Got you're it. not good, we're going to lock you here. There's ghosts. And... Um, <laughs> That's that's how we enforce this whole judicial system. Now, Ghosts. Now, I was looking at some images of it, and some of it showed the cell blocks. And I don't know if it's two different places, but one has just like bars. It looks like a normal jail, what you might see. And then one, it, they look like just almost like a, a lattice, like just little little holes. And they're almost solid except for the little holes. Are, is that like a older version and then a newer version? Or are there two different types of cell blocks there? 
Yeah, I do think that that is what it is, because the prison was built up throughout pretty much the whole hundred years with new buildings opening all the time. I mean, you have like that that standard. It's just like I'm trying to just remember from memory at this point, but four or five flights, four or five stories of just rows and rows of of cells and just those little just little bits of light coming in. And then you do have more modern and kind of more open, slightly more open for a prison areas as well. So, yeah, I do believe that it was built up and, and built along as we went, essentially. Now, I think I'd heard something about the solitary confinement. It's always so cold in there that people call it, refer to mm-hmm. it as Siberia. Siberia, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it was your just your typical bad times. I mean, that's the... <laughs> well, I mean, you got to think about it. You're surrounded by um, sandstone. It's mm-hmm. going to stay pretty chilly in there. Yeah. Just like, you know, having a basement here, it's a lot, a lot of a temperature difference just by going down a floor, mm-hmm. being surrounded by stone. It's going to have a similar effect. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's in that area as well that you do get a, a good amount of the hauntings. I can't recall if there was anyone who particularly ever died in solitary. I wouldn't be surprised if there wa- was. But I mean, depending on like your theories and beliefs on on ghosts themselves and how they manifest, just the amount of anguish that went into this being in solitary confinement and also being, I mean, especially in our winters, even now, where we constantly get down to negative five degrees. It's not even not even a big deal. It's not even a question that it's going to happen eventually during the winter. So thinking about negative five degrees, no insulation, brick room, all alone. I mean, the kind of energy that you put out in that scenario, I'm not surprised that people say it, it reverberates throughout. Do they have like a number of spirits they think are there or they just think there's quite a few? And also, I'm assuming that some of them are more of a dark entity. So do people ever get attacked when they're there? Yes. Yeah. So there's no, as far as I can can find. Is a firm number? There's no firm number. Count. Yeah. Yeah. It's just because the other thing is it's all sorts of different energy as mm-hmm. well. All sorts of different events because you have ghost echoes where you'll see or hear the same thing at the same time in the same place sometimes a lot of it's just like essentially a loop yeah a loop. yeah and um, that's the ones that you hear most of yeah and then you do have your full-bodied apparition you do have hearing the the screams or the wails but the energy there is said to be quite dark i actually have a friend who well he was my assistant drama teacher in high school who then decided he wanted to be a ghost hunter because he's fantastic he was there doing his own investigation, wearing two or three layers. It was in the dead of winter, and he himself claimed that he was he was grabbed and pulled. And you'll get that's one of the most common things that happens to an individual is the feeling of being grabbed. Sometimes the feeling of being scratched or hit, but not as much as simply being grabbed. And I mean, I just kind of think of myself in that scenario after being imprisoned, after potentially dying here. I I could see myself as a as a spirit just wanting to to reach out and touch something. And I really think that that's more of what it is. You do definitely have your darker spirits like Raymond Snowden, who is still there and still said to be one of the ones giving gut punches and things like that. I think the majority of people were just lonely and, and sad and unfortunately died deaths that lasted a lot longer than 15 minutes hanging, you know. 
I agree with you, Sam. And I think a lot of the time when you have this kind of energy that's there, especially in prisons, is these guys are being punished generally for something that they've done wrong. Occasionally in prisons, they would throw people in for stupid things like stealing bread or whatever. But for the most part, they might be a little bit worried about what's on the other side when they die. And that might be why they're a little bit more resistant to leave. And saying that, it would get really lonely being there. And so just to reach out and touch a human being, for me personally, I've never had that experience and I hope I never do. (laughs) Right, right. Me neither. That's why I don't want to go in October with Jason. I am good on that. It's going to happen, man. It's going to be great. (laughs) So a little bit earlier, you kind of made a reference to depending on what people's ideas of a ghost was. So what do you all think a ghost is? Jason, do you want oh, to man. start? <laughs> so I you can get some of that good right. Jason stuff I, uh, before I just go off on that, a tangent. That's fair. So I I just think in ninety percent of cases, at least, probably higher than that, what we think that we perceive as a ghost is really other external influences that we are using a ghostly present as like a scapegoat, uh, or if it's you know our own mind telling us there's a ghostly presence here because if you're looking for something you're probably going to end up finding it somewhere somehow the rest of it i mean if okay so that's that's my general overview about ghosts but if there are ghosts my my assumption would be it it's a like i guess a lingering energy from someone who has died but that's kind of in a nutshell the the closest thing that i could equivocate what what a ghost would be to me in my opinion a lot of times, I think it's just our surroundings and our minds really playing with us. I dig. Sam, uh, tangent, here we go. So, okay, let's start at the beginning here. All right. Do you, are you guys familiar with zero-point energy? No. no. Okay, so zero-point energy is the idea that within the vacuum of space, even just between atoms, there is untold amount of energy that can be harnessed and and it's been it's a little it's a little out there it's a little woo but it's especially things when you're looking at ufos when you're looking at interdimensional manifestations and things like that it's often a good go-to of how these things would work wait so you're saying energy between two atoms yes in the in the supposedly empty fabric of space okay so we're talking more like dark matter then, but not real yeah, matter. Sure, not matter. Because I mean, we, we split an atom, right? Which that the the nucleus has stronger bonds than what two atoms would next to each other would have, right? And we not know that. that kind of energy level. Yeah, no, that's okay. nuclear energy. This right. is zero point energy. Because the thing about zero point energy is you do not have to put energy in to get energy out, which but I know goes that, against the okay, laws of physics. Okay. I'm on board with All that. All right. Yep. So what I believe in my own way and this is how i've i've thought about ghosts since i was like 15 and 16 is that there is a moment in a person's life where they whether it's physical energy spiritual energy mental energy they are out just a hundred percent drained of all energy all will essentially to keep going so we're batteries let me just let me just talk okay it's fine and essentially, in that moment, they tap in. Everyone's going to think I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. I promise. I'm a, I'm a pretty reasonable Sam, guy, usually. It's too late for that. In that moment, you essentially tap into the zero-point energy field. You tap into this energy of the universe and draw it into yourself 
to keep going or to attempt to keep going. So for instance, in Raymond Snowden's case, he would tap into it in those last 15 minutes in an attempt to keep going. And because that energy is harnessed in this way, it creates a scar. It creates a, a scar which can be manifest as a loop, as a scream, as a grab, a touch, something like that. Because my thing about it is that I don't necessarily believe I believe in ghosts 100% and spirits of all kinds, but I don't necessarily believe they are conscious beings. I believe they are more of just echoes and shadows, shadows essentially, okay. yes. That's fair well, enough, that's, because I don't really me. know what a ghost is either. There we go, see? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think none of us have the, the true answer for that. Yeah, it's all theories. It's all speculation at the end of the day. For now, we'll see one day. That's an interesting one. I don't think you've told me that one yet. I haven't because yeah. I was probably because I you were going to make fun upset of me. about he it. He was yeah. waiting for me to ask, so <laughs> so he can just give it all out until the interview. Exactly. There we go. Well, what my, about you? Guys? Well, I was going to say wanna, my favorite episode that you guys did was your very first one on ghosts. I thought it was great. Oh Thank man! You. Yeah, someone likes that one. That was that was a good episode. It was fine, but it was our first episode. You know, yeah. those, it's always a little rough. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really am. Well, it is my favorite for me personally when it comes to ghosts. I mean, I could kind of look at a lot of the stuff that Jason probably thinks about when it comes to science. If you kind of lean over into the science fictiony kind of thing, because not only do we not understand death and what happens after that, but we also don't really have a comprehension of time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there's a possibility that sometimes if you look over and you see a ghost in period clothing and they're kind of giving you a weird look, I think they're seeing us in our clothing and that maybe mm-hmm. that's some kind of space-time continuum loop, whatever, that are intersecting with each other. And so that person's in 1890 looking at us in 2017 and we're seeing each other somehow through that. So it's not really that person's dead. Obviously, we're not dead and that that's maybe what we're having ha- happen I believe there there's different dimensions. And so I don't know, is, is something wandering in from one dimension to the next? And then there's also, when it comes to the residual type hauntings, I think, especially like when we're talking about the prison here, you've got sandstone. I think it's able to absorb some kind of energy and that sometimes maybe that's what we're seeing reflecting back at us. So when people get that kind of weird feeling, it's just they're maybe sensing that essence that's in the stone somehow. I dig that. I dig that a lot. Or it's just... Bad coding in the Matrix. There we go. Or it could be that. I mean, this is all just a big illusion. Jason is terrified of the Matrix. I am. (laughs) Terrifies me on a daily basis. And for me, I'm still trying to figure out what ghosts are. That's why I love to ask that question. So I know there's something out there because too many people have experiences or feel things and do things. We've seen a couple things that are odd that we can't really explain, but that might be something. And so I just, I like the whole continued just trying to figure out what it is. Unless somebody says it's a portal to hell and it's evil, then I don't want to know what it is. I just get out of there. Just step off of that one. Get back there. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Guys, I want to thank you for joining us. We've had our lights blinking a couple times, so I have a feeling we're Uh-oh. getting ready to <laughs> get ready okay. to go into that Lose week, week long of no power. But oh, no. before we let okay. you go, I want you to let everybody know where they can find your show, where you guys are on social media and all that good stuff. Yeah, we are. Jason is going to say just Google us, which yeah, is Yeah, it's the greatest thing. You That's get everything. Thing to say. You can contact us, your favorite mode. Yes. Yeah, so, but I'm actually going to say it. Okay. So, uh, we have a website, notalonepodcast.com. 
we have there we have blog posts with like uh, extended links and and descriptions and sometimes like photos and stuff in every episode. We are on Facebook at Not Alone Podcast. We're on Instagram at Not Alone Podcast. We're on Twitter at Not Alone Pod. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Podcast Addict, pretty much anywhere. I, I haven't found a single platform yet that I've searched for us uh, and haven't been able to to find us one way or the other. So yeah, pretty much anywhere you look, we're going to be there. Not Alone Podcast. We're everywhere. And you guys should definitely be listening to it. I love it. And I've loved the last couple that you've done too. The Jeff, the talking mongoose. Yeah. And, oh, um, Jeff. The, I mean, who wouldn't love the, a talking mongoose? I mean, <laughs> I, I really want uh, like a talking hedgehog. He's he's. <laughs> Oh, I would love best. a talking hedgehog. I love hedgehogs. That would be I'll awesome. I'll give him a little. I'll give him a little bow tie. Oh, that would he'll be... be the most adorable thing. All right, Jason. <laughs> I love it. Fabulous. Now we wonder all kinds of other things about Jason. <laughs> you just got a little insight into him. He keeps up. He keeps up a persona when we record. But when he's alone, that's what he's thinking about and doing. Putting bow ties hedgehog on hedgehogs. With bow ties. Yes, Question is: solid color or polka dots? You should probably do polka dots. I know, I right? Blue. Well, it depends on what color the hedgehog is. That is true. Okay, I'm not dyeing my hedgehog blue and naming him Sonic and getting him red shoes. Maybe I am. <laughs> I was going to say that would be cool. <laughs> Get an albino hedgehog and just tip his little his little things in purple. That would be awesome. It would be adorable, yeah. I love it. Oh, no. Stop enabling me. <laughs> yeah, Beautiful. I was going to say, Denise, step away from Jason, please. <laughs> hedgehog <good>. bling. <laughs> well, guys, thanks again for joining us and sharing about the prison. We love it when we can have people on who've been to a place and have, you know, actually experienced it and can tell us a little bit about it. And so I, when I heard you guys talking about it on your podcast, I was like, we definitely have to have them on to talk about it on ours. It's our pleasure. We had a blast. Thanks so much for having us on. All right. You guys have a great night. Yes. You too. Thank you. You too. Stay right. safe out there. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. As you heard Sam and Jason say there, it's almost as if the jail was frozen in time. There are paintings that visitors can see that the inmates created that are on the cell walls. There's still calendars hanging on the walls. And the walls are still discolored from some of the smoke and fire from those previous riots. The penitentiary was placed on the National Register of Historic Places, and as they told you, it is a museum today that offers tours. There are 30 historic buildings on the site, and several special exhibitions are offered, and one of those is the J. Curtis Earl Memorial Exhibit of Arms and Armaments. They also have events and programs held year-round, and those include Halloween events, so they probably have some stuff they're getting ready to ramp up in October of 2017. And then you guys heard us discussing the episode of The Low Files, and uh, he and his son were a bit afraid when they were in there. Yes, to me, with his son, was terrified, and he's the harder core of the skeptics of all of them, so that was pretty interesting, but he was not feeling really good when he was down in that. Wasn't he in the drop room, I believe? Yeah, his son was in the drop room, and then I believe... Rob Lowe went down into the solitary confinement and it almost looked like he went down into what to describe to people would be like he was going down into the cellar and they closed the door and locked it. Yeah, that I'd be like, no, thank you. But it was fun because they had these little, I don't know, some kind of indicators hooked up to him like heart monitors and stuff. And even though Rob Lowe had said he didn't really feel like he was afraid in there, the scientist who was there, she pointed out and said, your heart jumped big time right here. So she goes, you were definitely afraid right here. So that was interesting. 
I have an intake form here, Denise. And the way they would do this is it, it looks like a the body of a person drawn on it. And then they would mark different areas, you know, to show tattoos or what have you. It is kind of fun because looking at the intake form reminds me a lot of therapy reports I used when I had my massage therapy business where I would mark where there was like problems in, within the body, like muscles and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny when I saw it at first, I'm like, why, why does she have my massage intake form there? And this intake form is for an inmate called James Fitzgerald. It has him listed here as 26 years. He was five foot five, so he was kind of a short guy. But what I really love is they have this little handwritten note next to his name. And this is from October 24th, 1897. And it says, This man has been addicted to morphine. His arms, legs, and breasts are covered with scars from the effects of a hypodermic syringe. So I thought that was interesting that they had that on the intake form. Then some of these other notes that were in here, Denise, I was just, I just picked out a few fun ones. I mean, there were literally hundreds of them. You have Burl McCall, who was inmate number 4211. He was convicted of possession of liquor after crashing his car into a gasoline pump and later on a side road and entering a stranger's home in Garden Gulch that was in a cul-de-sac where he demolished all of the furniture in the house. And that's a direct quote, demolished all the furniture in the house, broke all 13 windows and set fire to an outbuilding. That was a bender. (laughs) I guess he probably woke up in jail going, what the heck happened? And whosoever house, oh my gosh, can you imagine? He just tore up all of the furniture and broke out all the windows. Well, in a lot of ways, he's lucky he just ended up in jail because somebody comes into your house, starts busting stuff up. Well, I don't know if anybody was there, but that would be grounds for taking care of business with them. Well, and all of this started with him crashing his car into a gasoline pump, which I would think would have blown up, but he was lucky to be alive for sure. We have during the trial of James O'Neill, and he's inmate number 4448, a witness provided the court with a recipe and proportions for making a little home brew. This is made with lemon, sugar, water, yeast, and potatoes called Snake River Special. The question was, what kind of drink would that be after you got it made? And James answered, real nice drink. Question, real nice drink was it? Yes, sir. Have you got any Snake River special on hand at the present time? James said, I have not, but I wish I had. (laughs) This was during Prohibition, which ended two years later in 1933. But I thought, wow, Snake River special. And I love how he's on trial and they're asking him if he has any. I would think that they would have removed it from him if he did. And were they asking because they actually wanted to try some? True. Or they could have been asking if he had some hoping that he would say like where he had it hidden since it was prohibition. But I love that he just asked if they had any to give him. Now we have some very infamous inmates that spent some time here. And one of them was Lida Southard, otherwise known as Lady Bluebeard. She was one of America's first female serial killers. She was an insurance killer, much like H.H. Holmes. She killed four of her husbands, her daughter, and a brother-in-law. She used flypaper to make arsenic, and that is how she killed her victims. A chemist who was related to her first husband began to suspect foul play when other husbands started dying, and he asked another chemist and a doctor to help him test the body. With their findings, they convinced the Twin Falls County prosecutor, Frank Stephen, to exhume the other bodies. Lida was living in Honolulu with her fifth husband when she was arrested. She was extradited to Idaho. Her trial lasted six weeks, and she was convicted of second-degree murder. Her sentence was 10 years to life. She escaped from prison and ran to Denver, where she took on a false identity and worked as a housekeeper for a man she eventually married. 
He would be the one to lead the police to her, and she was arrested again and returned to the old pen. She later was out on probation and eventually died of a heart attack in 1958. Can you believe that she was sentenced 10 years to life and she killed all those people? She's a serial killer, and that's what they gave her. And I cannot figure out how in the world she got second-degree murder. Because if you are making arsenic out of flypaper, you're not just doing that because it's a hobby and all those people died around you and that wasn't planned and she happened to be the beneficiary on all of their insurance policies. That is not second degree murder. Of course, the one thing she had going for her, she was a woman. And a lot of people had a hard time for many, many years wrapping their brain around women committing horrendous crimes. And so women tended to get a lot of leeway when they were people like her because they just couldn't conceive that a woman would do that. Well, her husband got lucky that they busted her before he ended up getting it. And then she married that other guy. I don't know what tipped him off, but thank God he turned her in. Yep, or he would have been the next husband. Now you heard Sam and Jason talking about Raymond Allen Snowden. This guy was dubbed Idaho's Jack the Ripper. He was convicted of murder in 1956 and sentenced to death by hanging at the old pen. And, of course, they relayed his gruesome hanging. What he had done is he had murdered a woman named Cora Dean. She was local and a single mother to two children. Snowden claimed that the couple fought. He backhanded her, and she then kicked him. He completely snapped after that and used his two-and-a-quarter-inch pocket knife to stab her 35 times. Before his hanging, Snowden confessed to murdering two other women. And I believe the way that I heard this is that he waited until they were getting ready to hang him. And then he relayed this information, I think, hoping that they would keep him alive a little bit longer. But he didn't want to give up who were these two other women? Where are they at? And so they said, now, we'll go ahead and you are going to meet your fate, which he did a little after midnight on October 18th, 1957. And so what's interesting here is he killed one person and got the death penalty. But he's a boy, so... And to call him Idaho's Jack the Ripper, I mean, he stabbed her 35 times, but that, to me, isn't similar to the crimes of Jack the Ripper. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure why he got that nickname, and that's only if he also killed those two other women, I guess, then he's got three victims. But, yeah, interesting. And apparently, as the guys were saying, he's still hanging around the prison there. Harry Orchard was an inmate who died in the prison in 1954. He had been in the prison for 50 years. He'd been convicted of the murder of Governor Frank Stunenberg. During his trial, he confessed to many crimes. He claimed to have been a union terrorist and his deeds had killed 17 people. He also claimed to be an alcoholic, a bigamist, womanizer, and a gambler. And the calm way he reported all of this stunned the courtroom. Although he was sentenced to death, a judge recommended his sentence be commuted to life in prison and the Board of Pardons agreed. His sentence was the longest sentence served by any Idaho State Penitentiary inmate. He died there in the prison as well, so I don't know. Could be a possibility that he's one of the spirits wandering around. Well, especially since he was the longest one there. I mean, that would basically be his home. An interesting death was that of Douglas Van Vlack. He had received the death penalty for the kidnapping and murder of his estranged wife. He was sentenced to hang at the prison on December 10th in 1937. He visited with his mother on December 9th and then shortly thereafter slipped past the guards and climbed into the rafters of his cell house. When the guards found him, he shouted, My mother told me that it was all right for me to choose the way I wanted to die. I'll never hang on that rope. He then dove headfirst onto the concrete below and died several hours later. 
Van Vlack is believed to haunt the former death row and is usually seen as a greenish ball of light. Batteries drain quickly in here. All variety of paranormal activity have been reported at the prison, as uh, Jason and Sam pointed out. Most of that activity is in cell house five where inmates were executed. And then solitary confinement is said to be the next most active area. Cold spots are a common occurrence, especially in there. Of course, it's called Siberia for a reason. So are the cold spot spirits or not? We don't know. The Rose Garden has spirits reported in it, full-bodied apparitions. There's also cold spots there. And since that had been a place where inmates were hanged on the gallows, they think that's why some of those spirits are connected there. There's weird noises, negative energy, and shadowy figures. So is the old Idaho penitentiary haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, that was a lot of fun having the guys on. uh, I encourage you to check out their show. The way that I would describe it is if you guys like our moments and oddity, they basically are the expanded version of that because several of the episodes that they've done, we did moments and oddity on. So you get about two minutes from us and you could get an hour from them and they really unwrap it and, and look at that kind of stuff as we were talking about Jeff the Mongoose and on our next episode, we are bringing you Haunted Cemeteries 4, and we're going to do a little something different with this one. We will have a haunted cemetery or two to present to you, but we're also bringing on listener Suzanne Silk to talk to us about cemetery symbology and how you can use the cemetery in your genealogical searches and just some of the architecture that's found in cemeteries and just all around fun cemetery talk. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you guys. We encourage you to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We have our anniversary show coming up on October 1st. We'll be celebrating three years and we have three winners in our flash fiction contest that we're looking forward to bringing to you. We'll also read a couple of the runners up and all of the other ones that didn't make it into the finals there. We will share on Christmas Eve this year like we did last year. And we will be announcing some additional things that we are adding to our Patreon supporters. Some fun stuff in the future. We want to focus a little bit more on that area and uh, really take care of the people who are taking care of us here on the show and helping us to bring this to everybody. And we have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. We want to thank Jen for updating her review We have Random Couch Potato, love it, five stars, entertaining and informative. I've been binge listening to the archives while I'm at work, which can get a little creepy because I have an overactive imagination and I clean a mostly empty building at night. I love the tone of the podcast because it's not just talking about ghosts and creepy crawlers, but rather focuses on the history more than the bump. Well, thank you, Random Couch Potato. And it doesn't sound like you're a couch potato if you're cleaning an empty building at night. And boy, have I been there. I know exactly how you feel. Then Sabrina Mendoza, Quispy, great stories and fun host, five stars. I've spent a while searching for paranormal podcasts and collaborating with coworkers and often found the hosts or stories of others to be a little too dramatic, mocking, or just not for me. I have been absolutely loving History Goes Bump. I recently started from the beginning and I'm hooked and have strongly encouraged my coworkers to check it out too. The locations and topic that they choose are very interesting and seem to be very well researched. The stories are super interesting, creepy, and captivating. I also appreciate the input and perspective of Diane and Denise along with their fun back and forth. Thank you so much for all the work and time that you put into your show. Well, thank you, Sabrina. And PB Jenny, great history podcast, five stars. 
encountered this podcast looking up information on the catacombs of Paris, but so many interesting topics, I just kept listening. Well, thank you for continuing to listen, and we are very jealous. We would love to visit the catacombs of Paris. We want to thank you for tuning into this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We want to thank Nicole Caps for her one-time donation and welcome new executive producer, Debbie Wilson. Thanks. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.